welcome to podcast 45 in our series, You Should Have Been There, with me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. And today we're going to be talking about natural navigation with a natural navigator, who actually is the only person to have flown solo and sailed single-handedly across the Atlantic. But um, before we uh, get to um, our natural navigator... I would like to thank everybody for sending in their photos in response to last week's um, podcast, Every Photo Tells a Story, or does it? Well, Simon and I have decided after a lengthy and painful judging session that the winner is the lovely photo by Inga Davis of three men on bicycles carrying umbrellas cycling through India. Actually, Mick, I'm going to give her her full name, um... Inga Davis Rutter and point out that this was taken in Bandavgarh National Park in India. And if you want to see all the entrants and decide whether or not we're correct, just go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash you should have been there. It will take you straight to our Flickr account. Oh, yes. Sorry, Inga. And um, you can decide as well whether you think that uh, the modest entries by uh, Simon and my good self are actually better or maybe slightly worse than uh, Inga Davis Rutter's. And we're now going to go back to nature with Tristan Gooley. Um, he is effectively the natural navigator who says nature is always making a map for us everything outdoors is a clue and a sign um tristan that sounds exactly what mick and i need um but presumably this is just something that you add on to uh, maps a compass and these days of course um a, a decent phone app yeah hi simon hi mick and at the that's a, that's a good way of thinking of it it's, it's adding a layer of interest and uh, natural navigation is a really good way of getting another perspective and uh, another interpretation of where you are and how to get to where you want to be. And you use the word need there. And it, it's it's a sort of it's a fun battle I have the whole time because people think of navigation as purely practical. You know, how do I get to this place as fast as I can? But actually, we have some of our most interesting times when we aren't trying to get somewhere as fast as possible, when we're actually pausing and understanding what's going on around us. And natural navigation, to my slightly biased um, you know, mind, is the best way of doing that. Can you describe where you are at the moment, Tristan? I'm absolutely fascinated. I'm sitting in a, in a cabin. Well, cabin's a slightly romantic way of putting it. It's a converted uh, Forestry Commission um, cabin at the edge of uh, some woods in, in West Sussex. So it's a, it's a sort of home, well, almost home counties version of in the middle of nowhere. And I can guess from having read your, your stuff that the branches are leaning outwards from the woods. Is that correct? Because they're, they're leaning towards the light. Yeah, absolutely right. Yes. And I think that was a, a little blog post I did recently. And that, that's really what my, what's at the heart of my work is this idea that, that nothing is random. We, we walk through landscapes and it doesn't matter if we're in the middle of a big city or in the middle of nowhere. And nature has responded to everything around it. So the sun, the wind, things like that are leaving footprints in our landscape. So the example you give there, trees grow towards the light. We get most of our light from the southern sky, as gardeners know. So trees grow bigger and their branches are closer to horizontal on the southern side. But it's also why, as you were picking up there, that's why if you walk past any woodland, the branches appear to be trying to escape from the woods. They're growing towards the light. If you decided to go to your, um, I don't know, your nearest pub or uh, something anyway, essential, but uh, a bit more urban than where you are at the moment, um, 
what kind of signs would you see uh, as you made your way to it that would sort of um, give us a clue as to how all this works, apart from the branches, of course? Well, the, the, within natural navigation, the, the fastest way in is, is thinking about directions. So if you're lucky and you know, for example, you're trying to find a pub in a village, you know, a, a few kilometres north of you, then you can say, OK, we're walking there for lunch. The sun is in them, you know, going to be due south in the middle of the day. So I'm going to walk towards my shadow. So there are literally, I mean, I've written about over a thousand ways of finding direction using nature. But then a whole very rich and sort of complementary area is how do we use nature to make a map? And in the example you give there, everything in its landscape kind of radiates out. Uh, it changes the things around it. So if we take something like a pub, a pub is not going to be in the middle of nowhere. It's going to be in a, in, a, in a town or a village or a city. Now, that is going to change the nature as you approach. So it, it might start with what feels like a very rural sort of landscape. The first thing you might notice might be, let's say, a butterfly. And you think, OK, instead of just sort of thinking that's pretty, you, you give nature a bit of curiosity. You say, well, what, what is your home butterfly? You know, what's your thing? What is your gig? And, and the butterfly will... Once you generate a bit of curiosity, uh, it will whisper back to you, well, I like stinging nettles. And so you think, OK, that's fine. I can recognise a stinging nettle. But what use is that? Stinging nettles grow in soil that is rich in phosphates. And human beings, the way we live, work, farm, and even the way we die, changes the soil to be richer in phosphates. So what does all of that mean? It means if you go from quite a wild area towards a pub, the butterfly tells you to look for the stinging nettles. The stinging nettles tell you you're getting near civilization. So the way I think of it is that the butterfly and the stinging nettles are telling you to get your drinks order ready. <laughs> <laughs> Can I ask one more question, uh, Tristan, before uh, Simon has a go? And that, uh, if you were going to the pub, I'm sorry to, uh, to concentrate on the pub, but I have actually been um, locked in and locked down for rather too long. Um, uh, <laughs> If you were going to the pub at night, uh, obviously, uh, let's let's assume a nice clear sky. Um, would you be uh, using the moon and the stars to find your way? Yeah, well, what I do and what I really encourage other people to do is, is mix a little bit of um, looking at a map with a bit of natural navigation. So a good example might be that you notice that there's a there's a road or perhaps a footpath that, let's say, runs east west to your pub. And then all you're going to do is find your way from another footpath through some woods to that to that footpath. So you just you're just going to, for example, use the stars to 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 head head north until you find your path, and then you know to turn right. So that way, instead of having to try and find a in navigation terms a needle in a haystack, we're just using one nice simple sign. Finding north using the stars is really not too challenging. Um, there are loads of these sort of techniques. If I mention these te techniques, instead of me going through how to do them on my website, naturalnavigator.com, there's very quick, quick sort of ways of doing it. But you, you just find the, find the path and then you're, you're combining an understanding using the map of, of what's going on around you with a bit of nature. And it means you arrive feeling like you've had a proper adventure, even if you've only used the stars for, for maybe a quarter of an hour. Um, what if it's cloudy? Sorry to heckle. I'm just looking above me and I couldn't make out any direction from what I can see in the, in the sky. I don't think you may well put me right. Well, actually, when it gets cloudy um, and, and when, I, when I run courses, I secretly want it to be cloudy because that's when it becomes more challenging, more interesting. Oh. So I mentioned about the, the, the footprints in the landscape. So using the sun, the moon and the stars is, is a really good fast way into the subject. Uh, but actually, the the kind of richness and the, in, the intrigue comes 
in those situations you're talking about, like today when there's a blanket of cloud, because then you're having to do a bit more detective work. So whether it's the shape of the trees, the way the clouds are moving, the breeze you feel on your face. I mean, I found my way across um, uh, about five miles of Dartmoor a few years ago in classic <laughs> Dartmoor conditions, just using the way the, the grass had been bent over by the wind. So, so these sort of footprints are everywhere, literally everywhere. Um, so so cloudy, cloudy times, are yeah, they're challenging, but more fun. Presumably, Tristan, early man had to do a fair bit of this from necessity when, uh, heaven forbid, there was not Google Maps or even Ordnance Survey. Absolutely. And that's uh, like so much of archaeology and prehistory. There are things we can say for certain. And then there are these wonderful sort of gaps in knowledge which pose so many wonderful questions because, I mean, uh, there are islands where they're, they're finding evidence that um, humans travelled to that are, uh, there's one off the west coast of, um, of the states, off the coast of California, I think, which uh, I forget the exact sort of distance, but it was clearly a boat journey. There was no way people had, had swum to this island and they found, uh, found evidence of civilization there going back. I think it's about 10,000 years, possibly oh. more, but the, the detail's not important, but we know that, that human beings have been taking on extraordinary journeys for a lot longer than we've been writing down records. So we know they had these skills. And I mean, I think I'm, I am a little bit biased perhaps, but I do think navigation is the most underrated art because there are so many parts of the human experience that, and travel is a very good example, that, that people understand have a, a huge cultural importance. Food is another area. People understand that is now culturally very important. But navigation gets overlooked. And, and, and part of my job, I feel, is sort of say to people, you know, from 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 the earliest days, there were certain things we did. You know, we, we kind of eat, sleep and find our way. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, a, that's pretty much the human journey early on. Uh, and yet it gets overlooked. So part of my job is trying to piece these bits together and work out, you know, when we look at things like the ancient Greeks, we have records, we can see how they did it. But if we go 5,000 years earlier than that, it, it starts getting very difficult to work out exactly how they were doing it. But we do know they were doing it. Isn't this, though, um, uh, Tristan, if you had a compass and a decent map, would all of the rest of it be rather redundant or at least some good fun, but not much else? Yeah, no, it's, it's a really valid question. And uh, it, it's related to what I was saying a moment ago in the sense that for me, navigation is, is a culturally important activity. And if we come back to the food thing, um, it, nobody now would argue that because we have a microwave, there's no point in taking an interest in where our food comes from or how we prepare it. It is an important part of, of socialising. So so for me, navigation is, is in that category. If we've all been in that experience where you're running a little bit late for a, a meeting in a town you don't know, that is not the time to start noticing that TV satellite boy, sorry, TV satellite dishes point southeast. But it, 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 uh, Do they? Yeah. Do they really? Yeah, they do. Uh, everywhere in the world, you can use TV satellite dishes. They'll always point towards the equator, um, and then and then again, it becomes cultural. So uh, in in the UK, we have a dominant um, satellite broadcaster. So most of our dishes point towards the same satellite, uh, which happens to be very close to southeast for most of the UK. But, but my, my my broader point is, if you're late for a meeting in a town, that's not the moment to notice things like that. But what I try and do is just whenever I can, is factor in an extra, you know, if I'm very lucky, two hours. But but sometimes it is just quarter of an hour 
and you can pop up and you just go, okay, I'm going to use this quarter of an hour to actually just work out which way I'm going to go without looking at the smartphone or without looking at the map and compass. And you just notice things that, that uh, have been there, you know, in front of us all of our lives. But it is, it, yeah, we just have to pause. And that navigation is a way of spotting these things and, and enjoying them. And technology and society is doing everything it can to destroy the need for that, surely, though. Because if you look at, if you ask 100 people, certainly in London, yeah, what's your favourite map? Many of them would say the London Underground map. That seeks to destroy geography. It's simply a, a, a kind of, as it were, a digital um, uh, derivation of an analogue picture and for an awful lot of people, they say, well, I'm delighted to uh, that, that um, uh, 100 feet above me, Tristan is looking at the um, satellite dishes. But frankly, I'm here on the Jubilee line and I'm happy. Thanks. Yeah, it's a really good example. And it had a, an impression on me when as a, as a youngster, I lived in London for a few years. And I noticed that, um, and it's influenced me to this day, actually, people are tribal in the way they find their way. So in London, you quite often you're a tube person or a bus person. You, everybody will use you know different ones if if necessity means you have to. But I think people instinctively have a preference. And I was very much a tube person. I I did a you know a, a, an awful lot of tube journeys. But it does lead to a a map of London in your head. And there are certain places that aren't that well served by by a tube or a bus stop. And if you're a tube person, you, you suddenly find that people are talking about a part of London. You you almost can't place it. It's lost all context, all richness. And natural navigation is taking that loss, you know, and filling it in to to the nth degree. And if we take something like, um, you know, what we used to call tom toms, you know, it's now just it's now just smartphones, isn't it, really? But but the colours, you know, if you're very lucky, you'll see four colours on your journey if you're if you're using something like that. Whereas if you look out of your window, there are one million colours. So we we may only have one turn at this life thing. So we really, we're making a cultural choice. Do I want a life with four colours in it or a million colours in it? And, and there are times when you're late for stuff, you want four colours, but there are an awful lot of other times in life as well. That's a very nice point. Um, now, look, I've got a map here in front of me. Uh, I'm not doing this as a test, but uh, it's just um, an interesting example, I think, of um, uh, which Simon and I uh, uh, both shared this experience of trying to um, get across a particularly weird and remote part of the world, the Darien Gap between Colombia and Panama, which is a uh, roadless and generally trackless uh, stretch of swamp and uh, rainforest. And I have here the best map we could get hold of. And it is just, uh, well, it's mostly uh, white <laughs> with a number of very uh, wiggly blue things, which are, are rivers, which do seem to have names and a few contours uh, and uh, a border uh, marked. But basically, it's pretty well impossible to find any serious natural features at all which would help you with navigation and I must say um, I was quite relieved when uh, we were about to set out on a journey across this when we were actually stopped from doing it by the uh, uh, first the Colombian and then the Panamanian military because it was too dangerous but I reckon if we had gone ahead and we weren't absolutely sure we could have got hold of a guide either I mean what sort of things would we have been looking for because we certainly wouldn't have been I mean we would have had a compass we would have had this map which possibly wasn't even very accurate and uh, we knew 
where we were going, which was a, a town called Yavisa, which is at the end of the Pan American Highway. If, if you were doing that, if you started from the, the shore at um, Puerto Obaldia on the frontier between the two countries, what sort of things would you be thinking about? Well, you've actually given given the answer there. I, I don't know whether you, you realised it or not. but I, uh, Probably not. <laughs> I, I, uh, I once headed into the heart of Borneo uh, to spend time with the, the Dayak on a, on a, oh. and, and we walked for, for nine days across the heart of Borneo. And my sole aim there was to, was to understand how they were finding their way. And what they use is the shape of the land with the rivers as the, as the kind of key to the, to the map. So and and it took me quite a, a a lot, quite a few hard yards to work this out. I really couldn't for the first few days of walking. I couldn't understand what was going on. So there were four of us. There were two Panandayak from from the interior, uh, who who I needed to kind of learn from. Then I had my fixer interpreter. There were four of us crossing this this, this remote region. And uh, what happened was the the, the two two Dayak gentlemen would would take turns either leading or or at the the tail, and the there was a time where the the um, the one at the one at the back um, uh, uh, was was giving instructions, and I just wrote down. You know, it's, it's it's quite hard taking notes as you would have discovered in jungles, but I was doing my best to take down notes. And I wrote down phonetically what these instructions were, and then when we we had our next water break, I asked my interpreter. I said, uh, "What what are these sounds?" And it took us a little while for me to get the sounds right, but I thought when he was giving instructions, he might have been saying. Um, left or right or go north or go south the sort of things that that navigators would expect uh and it was it was never that there were only four instructions and they were uphill downhill or upstream or downstream <laughs> their entire yeah. their entire way of relating to the landscape is to do with to do with water flow and gravity so that that doesn't seem to be terribly practical until you suddenly realize that actually um Every single river is 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 doing something quite logically in, in gravity terms, and they are so forensically tuned to gradient that they can tell the nature of the valley they're in by the way you walk up or downhill. By which I mean, a certain sort of gradient means a certain type of valley, which means you are in a certain part uh, of of the interior of Borneo in that case. So you need some vague understanding of what what's going on around you. You need some understanding of the the local geography and the topography. And I said to them, well, what if you are feeling genuinely lost? And they said, well, we'll walk to the top of the the hill. I said, yeah, but quite often we've got we've still got jungle on the top of the hill. And he said, well, I'll then climb to the top of the tree. They'll keep on going uphill <laughs> until they can see the shape of the land. And that, in a nutshell, I mean, there's a bit more to it, but that, that in a nutshell, is how they how they find their way. They have no interest in north, south, east, or west. I think we should go back, Simon, to um, Puerto Obaldia and try and get through the Darien Gap um, again. Uh, this time, the difficult way. And Tristan, could you come with us? Yes, I'm not going without him. Um, but but here we are. Here we are. Look, Kevin, I'm going to take you to another journey that Mick and I did through um, uh, deepest Peru in search of uh, Vilcabamba, the last resting place of the, uh, uh, the the Inca Empire. And you were talking just then, Tristan, about locals. Um, what's wrong just with asking the locals? I mean, it did cost us um at least half a day and possibly nearly our lives when we um uh, ask the wrong person perhaps or maybe in the wrong way but but most of the time i find you know the first rule of travel always ask yeah and i've got nothing against that i'm not i'm not suggesting natural navigation should displace all the other sensible and fun ways of, of traveling it, it just adds a layer 
So that example you give there, I would, you know, that is at the edges of natural navigation, because as you will have discovered and you're, you're highlighting there, there is an entire cultural aspect of how you ask people or how you work out who to ask. So in an urban... Ah, <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, if we take an urban uh, example, which, which everybody will have had this experience, and it's almost a sort of, it's almost sort of a long-running joke that you ask somebody and they'll, they'll spend five minutes telling you they don't know the answer. Well, to, to avoid that fun situation in, in the urban environment, what you do is you watch how people pause at the edge of the road. Because academics have worked out that one of the fastest ways of identifying if somebody's local and therefore knows the area is is the way they pause before crossing the road. So locals locals take a dependably shorter time at the edge of the pavement. Well, that's intriguing. Tristan, I wonder, um, before we let you go, whether you'd be kind enough to be, I suppose it's a guinea pig in the you should have been there questionnaire, uh, which we haven't um, tested on anybody yet. But uh, can we test it out on you and then we can, um, as they say, roll it out? So these are a, <laughs> I'm a of, <laughs> very good. Thank you very much. OK, so it's a number of questions. I mean, short answers, whatever. <laughs> Tristan, your most memorable journey? Um, sailing with a friend north from Scotland uh, uh, to the north of Iceland into the Arctic Circle to prove that the, the Vikings knew how to navigate using nature. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to ask a tiny bit more here, if you don't <laughs> mind, which is uh, what made you think that they did? And how did you prove it? I find ancient stories and, and historical tales are a very rich source for natural navigation clues. And the Norse law, the, the, the old Viking stories, talk about how you get from Norway to Greenland. And the, what they talk about is you must go far enough south that you lose sight of Iceland, but not so far south that you lose the whales or coast-seeking birds. Uh. And so that, that was a, a really fun red rag to a natural navigation bull. And I thought... <laughs> I've no doubt that works, but I, I checked and no academics have actually, you know, decided to give up their summer holiday to bob around in a small boat and work out if it does. So, so uh, yeah, I, I set off and uh, actually wrote an academic paper called Nature's Radar, which proved that the, the Viking method works. OK, if, if I might reduce things to um, a less profound level, what's your favourite souvenir? I think it's uh, a, a wooden tiller that, that I, I, I bought a a 30 year old boat to try and sail across the Atlantic in. And I thought it was perfect and robust and I thought it would get me across very safely, which in time it did. But on one of my first ever test sails on it, the, the wooden tiller came pretty much clean off in my hand and I, I got it stuck up on the wall at home. And it was, it just sort of reminds me that, you know, nothing goes perfectly to plan, but if you keep, keep chipping away, you, you get there. Okay. The strangest brew you've ever drunk, uh, the most bizarre drink. Uh, um, I don't think I'll win any prizes, so I'll just have to be honest and say it's just it's the the carver they drink in uh, in Fiji. I think probably the strangest, um, but I'm uh, I'm aware that um, there are quite a lot of <laughs> stranger ones out there, even in that part of the world. But I think the strangest one I've I've actually uh, settled down with and and had a, a good sup from is, is probably carver. And assume, assuming that was the aperitif, what was your best meal abroad? Ooh, um, I think it was. It wasn't the tastiest meal I've ever had, but it was the most memorable and uh, partly because it seemed like magic to me. But I was with the uh, the Tuareg in uh, in a in a remote part of the Sahara because parts of the Sahara are quite accessible. But I was in uh, the southwest southwest Libya in the Libyan Sahara and uh, I was with a, a couple of Tuareg there 
again, trying to learn everything I could from how they found their way. And uh, they, they managed to cook some bread in the sand. So they just made a very simple fire and then used the, the, the burning coals mixed with sand as their oven and, and made some dough and slipped that into the sand. But the thing that was magical, I mean, the bread tasted tasted perfectly pleasant. It was just like a nice pita bread. But the thing that, you know, I still can't get my head around to this day is that there was not a single grain of sand on it. You know, it's like you go to the beach, you cannot get the sand out of your sandwiches. And there I was, you know, deep in the Sahara eating bread without any sand in it that had been cooked naked, pretty much almost wet dough, not quite wet, but sort of certainly moist dough in sand. And there wasn't a grain of sand in it. So that's, yeah, that would, that would be my choice. What's the first thing you put in your uh, luggage, in your bag when you uh, go away somewhere? It's probably... It, the, the object itself varies, but it's it's normally my means of connection, and I think we're we're probably all all quite sort of similar in that. If, it, if it's a very if it's a very sort of routine trip, I think we all check that we've got got our sort of usual things these days, obviously including our our phone. But depending on the trip, is it's normally so I can think back to sort of backpacking trips, and um, I'm sure you've had the same experience, you know, long before we were all carrying phones, where you the key thing you have is the piece of paper with the phone number on it. So <laughs> if, if it's somewhere remote, it might be a, a satellite phone or something like that. So it's, the actual object changes changes each time. But for me, it's that thing that's going to make sure that when I choose to, I can actually connect with the next yeah. person I, I want to need to. And um, one last one. Um, have you ever been lost? Yes. I, uh, um, I sort of professionally try and get... Uh, sort of sort of in a in a very fun sense a little bit lost uh once a week i'll i'll just i'll just deviate and 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 that's part of my sort of uh ongoing professional development i suppose but the 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 proper scary lost story i have is uh i, I was a backpacker in uh and we were making our way across indonesia and we had some fun in bali and then we hopped over to the island to the east lombok and decided to climb the, the mountain there, the biggest mountain there, Gunung Rinjani, which is a, an active volcano. And we were typical backpackers. We thought we'd sort of try and save uh, a dollar wherever we could. And I, I tore four pages out of a Lonely Planet guidebook. We, we <laughs> borrowed a kit off a local bunkhouse and we set off up this mountain, which is about 13,000 feet high. Um, and near the, the summit, I reckon we were about 500 feet off the summit and the, our tent leaked because we borrowed it. Um, and we got we got really very cold, and my my friend who had um, uh, one less change of clothing, I think, than me, and, and got 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 hypothermia near the summit. So in the hurry to get down, uh, I got us properly lost, and we walked for three days without food um, because we we missed our our sort of our base camp for the summit attempt. Uh, I, I I missed it on the way down, so we didn't have our tent, we didn't have anything, we didn't have food, and um, it was really really scary because as well as being properly lost and and not eating, we'd uh, we'd lost um, we'd lost belief that we were going to get out, which I you know uh-huh. inexperience is is one of the most dangerous things, of course. So we we were sort of not that we had the means to do it. We were talking about how do we leave messages for loved ones and that sort of thing. Um, in the end, we found we'd become dismayed by animal tracks. But in the end, we found some animal tracks that look parallel. And we thought, well, animals do a lot of strange things, but they don't tend to walk parallel for, for any distance. So we walked along this thing. And I think after about an hour, we, we found some four by four tracks. And then we, we found the edge of a village. And it was that slightly sort of uh, almost cliche experience where they didn't speak uh, a word of English and we didn't speak a word of their language. And we were just trying to gesticulate to them, sort of showing that we were not in very good shape and, um, uh, and that, that we, we got out of it that way. 
crikey, your very own Touching the Void. Absolutely fascinating. And uh, yes, well, people can find out much, much more um, on your website, naturalnavigator.com, which has also got a full list of your excellent books, Tristan. It's been just a fascinating half hour. Thank you very much indeed. And I can't wait to actually just to go out for a walk and spot some satellite dishes. <laughs> Thanks so much, Simon. Thanks, Mick. Thank you. Thank you, Tristan. It's absolutely brilliant. And do you know what? I'm going to borrow one of your phrases to um, uh, explain to people why it is that when Simon and I go <clears throat> walking and trekking in places, we always get lost. I'm going to call it professional development in future. <laughs> well, there's, there's another one I can, I can add to your armory, though, which is... Um, uh, navigators never get lost. We become temporarily uncertain of our position. <laughs> yes. Very good. <laughs> well, one thing we are certain about is our position on what's going to happen in Podcast 46. Um, this is talking about travel, medicine and health um, with Sasha Heaney, a very interesting person, as all our guests are. Um, she is both a travel guide for Lupine Travel, uh, most recently working in Yemen, just about to embark on a trip to Sudan. But she's also a highly trained and professional nurse. So just the person we need to talk to. Um, and uh, we look forward very much to uh, speaking to her next time. In the meantime, um, from me, Simon Calder. And me, Mick Webb. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>